Hello and welcome to Adventures Through Asian Cinema, where your hosts Ben and Jack discuss films from different Eastern countries. Join us on this journey as we dive deeper into the fascinating world of world cinema, two films at a time. Hello Ben, how are we doing today? I'm doing well, how are you doing Jack? I'm good, it's new podcast day, it's episode one of new podcast, so that's always a fun time. I agree, I agree. A little bit nerve-wracking I suppose, but still excited. For sure. But, you know, who better to talk about films from an Eastern country than two middle-class white dudes <laughs> from different parts of the world? I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so what are, we, what are we classifying as Asian cinema in this podcast series? So we, I mean, we had a, a decently sized conversation about this. Um, and basically, we are going off of... I guess what the United Nations considers the Asian countries, um, <laughs> the, and the definition. Yeah, yeah. The, we're going with the definition. So you know, this isn't strictly like China, Japan, South Korea. Uh, a lot of the countries that people tend to cover when they talk about Asian cinema, mm-hmm. we're going for everything. Uh, well, everything that we can, because mm-hmm. we also learned that some countries have like next to zero cinematic cinematic output. And if they do have and a little just, bit, you know, availability, <laughs> trying to find some of these films is going to be difficult. Some things we just won't be able to find. But we're going very broad because we want to cover as much as we can. Exactly. So some of this will be films that we we know and love and have, have seen many times before, and other times we'll be talking about things we've never heard of before. And it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting introducing other people to films we know and also introducing films to ourselves that we've never heard of before from different corners of Asia. So today we're concentrating on Japanese cinema because obviously it is Japanuary and Japanuary is a month dedicated to watching and discussing Japanese cinema. Basically Japanuary is something that has existed for a while, uh, long before I think I was even into movies or especially before I was on Letterboxd. But when I joined the Discord server for Letterboxd um, and people noticed I was very into Asian cinema, they were like, we should have a challenge centered around this. And why don't you create it? And I was like, I don't know if I'm really the person to do that, but I'm gonna go for it. And it ended up going very well. And the structure of that challenge was basically for each day of the month in January, uh, there's a different director listed and you watch a movie from that director. Uh, And the thought is the more you expose yourself to, the more you learn about your taste and the more you learn about Japanese cinema too. And so, yeah, this is the second year of, I guess, my take on the Japanuary challenge and it's going really well so far. And I, I think everyone enjoys it because it, it gives you that little extra push you need to see things maybe out of your comfort zone or even classics that you've just been neglecting. Exactly. And today we're going to be discussing two films that actually f- appear on the, the original Japanuary list from two directors that um, we wanted to cover. Two rather different films, one film that I picked and then one film that Ben picked. Ben has seen both of these before, I'd only seen one before. So let's talk briefly about our history with Asian cinema or specifically Japanese cinema because today we are talking Japanese cinema. Ben, where did it all start for you in terms of Japanese cinema? It's hard to pinpoint maybe the exact movie, but the movies that I can think of that I I always associate with like 
my introduction to that world um, are the me- the movies of Takashi Miike. Um, I was I worked at a physical media entertainment pawn shop, so movies, CDs, all that stuff. And I was really into horror movies at the time because I was just out of high school. Uh, horror movies are things that are fun to watch with friends at that time when, you know, if you were single like I was at that time and all you think about is girls as well. <laughs> They're fun to watch with girls like horror movies. Horror was the genre that I gravitated toward after I watched enough well what i thought was enough of the classics or western classics uh you know like the exorcist halloween nightmare on elm street all these different movies uh, i wanted to branch out and i had seen audition and i had heard that audition was uh something to behold and so i watched it and it absolutely floored me i was like oh my goodness this is i mean this is like a fantastically crafted piece of cinema uh and it like i mean it it stunned me and so after that i searched out more movies from takashi Miike. with my next being uh probably the other most notorious film in his catalog uh ichi the killer and i think that is when i was officially sold on like this is something i want to keep exploring and immerse myself in because much like the movies we're going to talk about today uh you know it it was it's a very stylized film and and it has actors that you can gravitate towards and so everyone knows i'm the big tadanobu sano fan but i'm a fan of all of the actors in that movie i love jun kunamura i love now amori uh and i'm one of those people that is weirdly more inclined to marathon through an actor's filmography before a director's because uh, i feel like i can get burnt out if i stick with one director for too long but with an actor it, it's a great way to get introduced to a bunch of different good directors and that is exactly what happened when i when i watched ichi the killer loved tadanobu sano's performance you know i then saw mabarosi which is hero kazu karita mm. uh, i saw taboo which is oshima um i saw all these different movies uh from very important directors in japan and uh here i am now and i just can't get enough of japanese movies i feel like there's an endless amount of good movies to explore here oh god yeah i think for me it 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 goes back to sort of early 2000s when i was just getting into watching movies in general not like with a critical eye or as like a full-time hobby but you know just like going to the store and buying dvds to watch with your family or whatever and it was spirited away and miyazaki movies as as like a lifelong fan of animation it was unlike anything i'd seen before in terms of animation and storytelling and music and character design and set design my history with anime goes back to you know god knows when but Miyazaki movies opened me up to a whole different culture and a whole different way of thinking about filmmaking in general. And that led me down, you know, several different paths. I went back and was looking at Kurosawa, films like Rashomon, Throne of Blood. Well, I was getting into sort of seriously thinking and looking and talking about film because I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with all things cinema in terms of all all walks and all countries and all styles. And I reach a point where I'll I'll want to dive deeper into someone's career. Someone with like Kurosawa with Seven Samurai and uh, Akiru and Throne of Blood. It was such a, a different way of making and telling stories 
that I'd never really thought of before. And then I think there was a as a when I sort of got more ingrained in the letterbox community, um, and especially the Discord server in terms of Japanery and talking to yourself and some other friends, it was getting recommendations to check out different directors and opening other doors to finding new favourites. Last year, I found some of, probably some of my favourite films ever through Japanery, finding new de- directors and new actors and new genres as well. It was interesting to d- dive deeper into genres that I'd never really considered before. So that was my introduction to Japanese cinema at large, and now I'm a you know huge fan of kaiju movies, which we're definitely going to cover at some point. Um, you know, Japanese body horror, Japanese war movies, Japanese animation, uh, you know, samurai movies. There's so much to cover from Japan, and I'm excited to cover the two films we're covering today. So we're going to now talk about the first film, Tokyo Drifter. <laughs> Tokyo Drifter follows Tetsuo Watari as the reformed Yakuza hitman Phoenix Tetsu, who is forced to roam Japan avoiding execution by rival gangs. So this is a film from 1966 by Seijon Suzuki, a director that is listed on the Japanuary list. And I think this is the first film of his I saw. I think this was actually one of the first films I saw for Japanuary last year. I blind bought the Criterion Collection Blu-ray just because of the stunning cover and the artwork and immediately fell in love with this film. It's such a, a nice stylized 60s Yakuza rip-roaring gun, gun trailing, gun blasting adventure. I've gone on to see a couple other Suzuki films, um, some in very similar style of this sort of midpoint in 60s Japan, taking Western influences from, you know, Western adventures and gangster films and creating their own incredibly stylized and incredibly fun action mafiosa mob battle movies. Yeah, I I also had a similar experience with Seijin Suzuki. I had not, I had not seen anything from him last year or until last year, and the first one I saw was Tokyo Drifter for the same reason. I blind-bought the Criterion. I thought the cover <laughs> looked stunning. Uh, and, and if I'm being honest, at the time, I, I I hadn't seen that many Japanese movies. Last year was kind of like the, the turning point for me to get really into it. And I had seen Yakuza movies that were much more hyper-violent and still stylized, but in a totally different mm. way. Um, I, I had been into like the Takashi Miike movies. So, I mean, we, we've seen enough of those. Most people have to know what he's working with when it comes to Yakuza movies. Um, so this was like, compl- I don't want to say it was completely out of my wheelhouse. I didn't know if it was in my wheelhouse. And I saw it and I was blown away. Um, mm. I, I think that Suzuki he's not everyone's cup of tea because the the narrative or the plot kind of you know is pushed to the side but i also think that when it comes to yakuza movies you don't really need this this very deep plot like when you look at tokyo drifter like bare bones and it's a bare bones movie Mm. like there's a guy uh that's loyal to his boss and then there's these other gangsters that want to take advantage of the situation uh, of that boss not necessarily being as in much power anymore. 
uh, and it, it then just becomes a story of like who can you trust, uh, betrayal, where your real brothers are at in terms of brotherhood in this life of crime. Like it's really straightforward and it's only 80 minutes. I, I think that it's almost like unfair for the movie to be maligned by people for not having this deeper plot. Like it's a Yakuza movie. I don't know what else people really want from it. Um, I also think it's quite a decent introduction into that world in general, just because mm -hmm. it is so bare bones and you have this really impressive window dressing and the set dressing and it all looks amazing, all the colours pop and you get to you get to get a feel for, you know, these mob bosses and this, this sort of world, especially during the 60s. For sure. And, and I think that one of the most important things in any Yakuza movie, whether it's a Mike one that's going extra violent or bonkers or this or even like maybe a katana one where it's like very stylized but also like reserved in a weird way um mm. i think that you you need main characters that you can gravitate towards and like and i think with tetsu or phoenix tetsu like you get that mm. he is a yeah, he yeah. is a he's cool your, he's dude. Your leading man. Yeah, he he's yeah, a cool yeah. dude. You like him. He like he's totally an asshole. <laughs> totally like <laughs> lives a life like no one else does. But you like Absolutely. him, and I think that's what's most mm. important. So, and I like everyone else in the movie too. You know, there's a lot of weird, colorful characters along the way. But there's only one character who sings his own theme tune. <laughs> That's that's true. just something we we don't we don't get enough of that anymore. How what a Chad move to sing your own theme tune as you as you're walking down you know train tracks and stuff. I I I totally agree. I mean, the one of my first thoughts when the movie ended is like, I wish I had my own theme tune, and I wish that it wouldn't. Exactly. I wish it wouldn't be bizarre if I sang my own theme tune. <laughs> <laughs> but but this guy, I mean, he's wearing baller suits the whole time. Oh, you know, the, 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 yeah, the wardrobe department on this just really went ham. Yeah, it is in the middle of sort of the the swinging sixties, and seeing that. Um, you know, over the pond in Japan and seeing what that looked like fashion-wise. You know, these bright, sort of almost zoot suit level <laughs> you know, fluorescent suits. You've got your yellows and you've got your baby blues. Everyone's wearing suits. Everyone's smoking cigarettes. Everyone's got a piece in their pocket ready to, you know, fire on their friends. Exactly. I mean, it's just, I don't know, like 80 minutes long. One, like the style is the substance, but I really, I just... I don't know. I I love this movie so much that like, it 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 like it makes me sad that everyone else j can't just immerse themselves in the style of mm. it because like it's just eighty minutes like of vibes like it, it's this guy that I would say is almost like the poster child for, for probably like toxic masculinity. <laughs> um, like he's loyal to his boss. He he's bad to women and like I don't like like I would hate him in real life. Oh for but sure. There's something about watching these characters in movies that's so appealing. Sure, he's almost like an anti-hero in that you you hate to love him but you love to hate him. He's just sort of you know, his, his cold stare and his grimaces as he just sort of gets on with the job, slinging guns out of his pocket left and right and going into these sort of jazzy ballrooms <laughs> and these well-lit and incredible sort of soundstage jazz lounges, which are all incredible, and then just sort of, you know, shooting guys with big swords. It's all good. <laughs> I love that the whole movie, like the drama of the movie, hinges upon his 
his unfettered loyalty to his boss mm. and then like how quick it is you know for for that to change with and without him knowing like that's all of the drama is like there's all of these other gangsters meddling in this business and collaborating mm. and he's kind of just a pawn that's caught up in it and you know i i think at the beginning of the movie someone mentions that the two of them are like father and son you know this mm. is like a father figure to him and when you th look at it that way like the drama is intensified because sure. here's this guy that would do anything for his boss and we don't know if you know that would be reciprocated from the boss to him um and so yeah we just see him drift along he drifts <laughs> oh does he drift he he drifts everywhere you know he's aimless he's lost in this this world of crime and i also like that like all of the antagonists are more obsessed with him than he is with them oh, like for he, sure. he yeah, really yeah. is just kind of caught up in in a bunch of nonsense he really like, is just like sort of drifting through and he's sort of just trying to you know see the days through and everyone is sort of focusing in on him and he's just trying to get this job done and i think where the movie really starts to win me over is when he's walking along those train tracks in the snow uh and not i mean one there's an awesome fight at that scene or battle whatever you want to call it but two that's basically when another loner comes into the picture and i feel like that makes things even more interesting and fun is like these two loners one is like the seasoned vet almost like he's lived this life for a while and he almost becomes like the new father figure in some ways and and i like that a lot i like that dynamic between the two mm. two drifters drifting into each other what could possibly go wrong exactly exactly it, it's just it's one of those things like I immediately wanted to see more Suzuki, and I'm disappointed that I haven't <laughs> taken the time to watch more than I have. I have seen, I've seen a couple more, and it's interesting, you know, watching, I think this is probably the earliest in terms of sort of Yakuza cinema, one of the earliest that I've seen. And seeing sort of the, the cultural impression, the lasting cultural impression it has had on later filmmakers, and even things like... Um, anime series, Suzuki himself would go on to co-direct a Lupin the Third movie, which are all about these globe-trotting adventures with, you know, zany characters in very fluorescent pop colours and these action sequences very much lifted from things like Tokyo Drifter in terms of this, there's a, there is a playful undertone, but there is a great as you said, sort of a focus on style necessarily over substance, but there is a, a focus on entertainment value over the narrative. There is not really a convoluted plot to Tokyo Drifter, but it is a fun, rip-roaring 80 minutes. The only other movie I've seen from him thus far is Branded to Kill, which I won't talk mm -hmm. about too with much. With our boy. Yeah, with our boy with the big <laughs> cheeks. <laughs> Um, Joe Shishido. I, I won't talk about that too much because, I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll talk about it here one day. But um, I, I think the other thing that makes Tokyo Drifter and Suzuki more appealing to me is that, like, I feel like his career kind of mirrors that of, like, an outsider. And, and like, Tokyo Drifter is, like, this outsider kind of marching to the beat of his own drum. And, and we see with Suzuki, like, you know, he he had his fallout with Nikatsu, the studio, um, because he would make these hyper-stylized movies that, like, people... 
I, I think it must have just left them confused then like it does now. Um, <laughs> but but at the same time now, like people look back and they're like, like you were saying, these are so influential. We can we can feel the impact of movies like Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill throughout Japanese cinema today. And um, I, I think it's just super fascinating that like he had this studio career. It didn't work out. Um he has these he's worked with people that have connections to the pink film industry um even his own movie gate of flesh i think is like widely considered um you know something to have uh changed the perception around like nudity in film and stuff like mm. that so i mean he's a very important figure within the industry um and i guess it just goes to show that maybe if you do sidestep the narrative but have this super awesome vision for your for your visuals, you can get away with it. I mean, you can change <laughs> everything. <laughs> so it's a nice foundational piece of Yakuza cinema. And it's so accessible as well in terms of, you know, it is 80 minutes long and it is so watchable. I don't know how people have trouble necessarily engaging with the film, with this bright rainbow of colors in front of them and the um the way it's shot as well is really really good lots of sort of uh flat angles and lots of wide soundstage sets that are sort of photographed in this wide lens sort of way showing you every nook and cranny of the stage showing you all this action and these set pieces like an intricate game of chess or something and the way that he he frames violence throughout the movie like i feel like it adds to the intensity and the tension uh, I love the scene at the train tracks, like I was saying, but also that big that big brawl with like the <laughs> with with the white women there and all these people fighting and stuff. Like it, it's so excellently captured. The biggest thing that I I try to think about when it comes to this movie now, other than what I like about it, is like why it doesn't work for other people. Because mm. like you said, for for us it's so watchable. Sure. And I'm like I like I like the theme. And the theme is constant throughout. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty movie. It's fun to look at. And I mean, it's a Yakuza movie. So you want the action or the violence to land. And I feel like it lands here. Mm. So like, I, I, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's almost like I'm asking myself, well, what could have been different where this would have worked better for people? Because it works so well for me. And, and I know everyone has their own taste, but it's like. I've seen a fair few of Yakuza movies from like multiple time periods. Yeah, different directors, different and landscapes. And I feel like, you know, for its time, th this is pretty like remarkable stuff. I don't know if you've seen it, but I would also recommend people check out uh, Suzuki's earlier film, which is also another Yakuza gang rivalry movie called Youth of the Beast, which I watched for this year's Japanery, which is incredible. Um, both are very stylized 60s Yakuza mobster films. This one has a lot more, uh, I'd say, intensity in terms of its violence, Youth of the Beast that is, with our, our, our favourite actor who got cheek implants to get Yakuza roles, Joe Shishidu. Yeah, I, I have not seen that yet. That is my, um, that's actually on my list too. So I plan to get to it after this podcast. Uh, yeah first joe what a legend i mean <laughs> i don't think movies. i agree i don't think i agree with the decision but what a legend i know you must have been he must have been really because he was getting he was basically getting cast in sort of romantic lead parts 
and he was sick of that for some reason. I don't know. I don't know the whole backstory, but basically got cheek implants to give his face this this real unique, almost grotesque quality to get these sort of hardened, more um, criminal sort of uh, roles in these Yakuza pictures. And it worked. I mean, he, he does come off as this sort of threatening character in films like Branded to Kill and Youth of the Beast. It's just, it's so frustrating because he's like such a badass, but then I also want to laugh like most of the time he's on screen. Um, but he, I mean, talk about dedication to your craft, willing to get cheek implants that, I mean, I, I've seen, I saw pictures of him when he was older. Nothing changed, so. No, no, they're still there. To go back to Tokyo Drifter, um, I think the violence is also mirrored through the the sort of musicality and the music sequences and the dance sequences, all incredibly stylized, almost like these sort of 50s Hollywood soundstage musicals like Singing in the Rain and this this sort of pop art style and very, very sort of 60s decor and lighting and colour schemes. It's all very well set up, shot and edited together. And I think actually the the lighting and the dance scenes are maybe where I notice uh, the influence of Tokyo Drifter the most, and maybe you can attest to this, but like, I think of the second entry into the female prisoner Scorpion series mm. with like those, uh, like through the floor shots yes. with like interesting lighting and stuff. And like that happens here. There's so much colored um, lighting in that, in, in that second film specifically. The first one is incredibly dark and dingy, but that second, uh, second film in the female prisoner series is so almost like Jarlo influence with its lighting, lots of reds, lots of greens. And that's, I just, I think I'm a sucker for that sort of thing when people use gels on their lights to give, to basically paint a mood through colour. Mm. That definitely comes across in films like Female Prisoner and Tokyo Drifter, because we're using a lot of pastel colours, we're using a lot of primary colours to paint this sort of rainbow, which is also counterset by the, the black and white, which is used as flashback scenes. The film actually begins in black and white as we get this, you know, this introductory part. And you're going to hate me for bringing this up, but this has obviously been ripped off in films like Kill Bill and other sort of Tarantino pastiches of Japanese cinema. I, I was watching it the other night and I just immediately thought of Kill Bill again, just because it, it, the, all, the, all the flashback scenes are in black and white, heavily framed, heavily centred. And then we move into those yellows and those bursts of colour and... Tarantino loves to steal from movies that we love, and he definitely stole something from Tokyo Drifter. Yeah, I mean, Tokyo Drifter does feel like the exact movie. <laughs> we, we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. Who better to talk about these movies than some middle-class white men? It feels like the exact movie yeah. that like white directors that love Japanese cinema would be like, I am going to make you know, a Japanese-infused film, and it's going to have all of these sure. stylizations 100%. Mm -hmm. um, exactly, because they do it so well. It's done so well, and this, the mise-en-scene of this film is just it's gorgeous. Yeah, I want to live in these colors and in this for world. For sure. Um, I think another interesting thing to touch on, that I, and I had looked this up the first time that I ever saw the movie, but noticed it again, um, and it has me curious, is that um, the main actor in uh, Tokyo Drifter, uh, whose name is Tetsuya Watari, um, wasn't really in that many movies in the grand scheme of things, which I thought was interesting. Oh, right, okay. I'm looking at his filmography right now, 
And Tokyo Drifter, it looks like the third film he was ever in. Um, now, maybe maybe he did. I'm sure he might have done like theater stage work. Or, yeah, it says he did stage work, too, and, mm. and television. Television, yeah. But like, I felt like he was a very likable lead. He's a very charismatic, very charismatic bastard in that he he plays a baddie who's also a goodie in a very sort of subtle way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he's very conservative in his mannerisms, and he's got that that almost permanent grimace on his face, which is just you sort of draw yourself to that. I'm kind of a sucker for these for these actors that have like a commanding screen presence without really doing a lot. I mean, I think mm. everyone that knows my favorite actor knows that that's <laughs> kind of like his thing, Tadanobu Asano. Yeah, it's like these like stoic guys that can get like this. I don't know. They look they look mischievous at times. They're like sly, um, but they, they, it's the way that they carry themselves that I think draws you in. I think it is a minimal sort of performance, but you you can also do that incredibly wrong. You can get that so wrong. You know the way he carries himself, his posture, also mixed in with the wardrobe department and these beautiful layouts and backgrounds, sort of build this sort of stoic, silent character together and create that captivating leading man that we find in Tokyo Drifter. And that's why we, we you know, we watch and rewatch this movie. Yeah. It's for, for our main man. And I, I feel like I'm going to have to do a deep dive one day and look at the other movies he is in. Because I see that he's in some other Yakuza movies, um, specifically some Kinji Fukasaku movies. And I'm not... I'm not totally on board with his movies yet. I, I loved Battle Royale because who doesn't? But that's also one of his older movies. Um, well, Zebra doesn't. Shout out Zebra. Um, sorry to call you out for not liking Battle Royale, but <laughs> um, but I saw Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and I mean it's also super stylized, but it it felt like there was too much going on. Like I kind of called Tokyo Drifter. It's stylized, but also like reserved in some ways. But um, oh, for sure, yeah. Battles without honor and humanity is like moving a million miles per minute, and so I'm curious to see what that actor would be like in some of that director's movies. I'm watching the first in that series later this month for Japanery, and one of the critique of that whole entire series of films is that the plot gets so convoluted and there are so many characters and you have to follow so many different threads. So it's going to be interesting going from Tokyo Drifter into that. Um, I just want to talk about this uh, as a series of films that uh, Tetsuya was actually in uh, called Outlaw Gangster VIP, which uh, has definitely (laughs) caught my eye here. There's there's six posters on Letterboxd and he seems to be the leading man in at least a couple of them, if not all of them. I think they might be Yakuza films as well, so I might have to check that out further down the line. Seem to be a, a rather underseen series. I'm seeing like 700 views on the first one, but some really high ratings, so I'm definitely interested in those. I think my favorite thing about Japanuary, other than being introduced to directors, because like some of the people that I put for the challenge are directors I haven't seen anything from either. You know, I, I just know of them, heard of their significance, and I'm like, I'm going to force mm-hmm. myself to yeah. watch these. Uh, but it's the same thing with actors. Like, this is now an actor, like you said, like, I want to watch these outlaw gangster movies. I want to watch, like, everything he's mm-hmm. been in because Absolutely. he's just so good in this. And, like, I think, yeah, this is the only performance I've, I've seen him in so far. So it'd be interesting to see if it's he, he plays these quiet, stoic types in other films or if he does have that range where he can 
you know broaden himself to different characters but judging by the the posters on his page it all seems very quiet controlling gangster types i i will say i just found something crazy about tokyo drifter maybe not crazy go on but as you said you were looking through his filmography really quick you saw those outlaw gangster movies i just saw something was all right was tokyo drifter released in 1966 66 yeah so there is a listing with him as the lead, of course, for a Tokyo Drifter 2. <gasps> the sea is bright red as the color of love. Released the same exact year. What? And it has and it has a whole whopping two views on Letterboxd. Oh, I've just found um, it. You're right. I have no idea who the director is. No, I haven't heard of the director um, or seen any of his films. I had no idea that this existed. Until just now. The lead woman, the lead woman from Tokyo Drifter as well, from the looks of it. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe one day we need to watch that and come back to this podcast if we can find it. If we can it. find it. I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at the cast list now. It has Terio Yoshida, who is a, um, an Ishii favorite. He was in Orgies of Vido and other films that we've seen together. And he's also in some Ozu. Yeah, I'm gonna have to try and hunt this down <laughs> at some point. Two views on Letterboxd. Oh my God. That's insane. So yeah, Tokyo Drifter, probably one of my favourite uh, introductory Japanese films in terms of style and a place and a whole genre of cinema in terms of Yakuza. Yeah, same here. I think um, what I appreciate most about Tokyo Drifter from my personal experience is that I, I actually feel like it helped me get into older films uh, more easily. Sure. Uh, I would say that last year going into... To, to Japanuary, I had generally saw more of the contemporary stuff. Yeah. I had stuck to like Sono, Mike, uh, and and Sukamoto, and just stuck with them. Um, and so Tokyo Drifter was one of the earlier ones I saw last year, and I was like, "This is the 1960s. Like, why why am I not watching more of these movies?" And I know that like that probably sounds dumb, but I think a lot of people are that way. Like, sure. no, it, it isn't easy to get into movies that are like you know 50 years older than you immediately like it takes a little bit of practice almost to get on that wavelength that's the same with any any older films let alone sort of uh asian cinema and you know specifically japanese cinema there is this is this gonna is this gonna play in 2022 is this film from 1966 gonna play as well as it should do and tokyo drifter definitely does yeah i think it's like a perfect introduction to you know 1960s japanese cinema yakuza cinema mm-hmm. and i i feel like there's enough like western influence in there too uh to make it not like a super daunting watch for those people that might be less familiar with international cinema So the second film we're talking about today is a film directed by Gakuryu Ishii, um, who is this very important but underrated figure in Japanese cinema. At least is at least that's my belief. Uh, as a university student, Gakuryu Ishii directed this movie called Panic High School, and this movie ended up being so good, or or at least seen as so good by studios. That the studios picked him up, picked it up, and had him make it again oh, wow. you know, for them. And this is 
And like I said, this is a university student. Uh, I think it ended up being like one of his big projects. And to, to put into perspective how big of a deal that is, like Japan, especially at that time, was very much about the studio system. Um, if you wanted to be a director in Japan, you had to go to school to be a director. You had to work under other directors for a long time. You had to make, you know, help make movies you probably didn't care to make. That was kind of how things went. And then if you were good enough or lucky enough, you know, you kind of got to take the mantle and, and have some more freedom. Um, and obviously there are some exceptions before Ishii that managed to pull off like independent films and stuff. But those have equally as insane stories and we'll get to them one day. But yeah, Ishii changed the landscape uh, for independent filmmaking. Uh, and he did it in the 80s, which many people consider kind of not a great time for Japanese cinema, um, despite the fact that people like Shohei Imamura won the Palme d'Or uh, for things like The Bout of Narayama. Uh, in general, there's not a lot of movies from that era compared to other eras that people look back on. So the fact that he did that was phenomenal. And so he made these punk films. That's what they were. They were punk films. Uh, and if you watch his other movies like Crazy Thunder Road or Burst City, uh, you can see that those were the blueprint for things like Tetsuo the Iron Man, which is now like a huge part of, of cult cinema. You know, often people will see an Ishii movie and be like, this feels like Sukamoto. And I'm like, you have it backwards. I'm like, the Sukamoto movie feels <laughs> like Ishii. Like, Ishii. like he, interestingly enough, they went to the same university. So that's another fun fact. But yeah, he made these punk films. And eventually, despite doing well, uh, for the most part, it got to a point where they weren't really making money. And he took a a decent hiatus from feature filmmaking. He He made music videos uh helped a lot of bands and stuff because he was very interested in music so he'd make like features centered around that but like regular feature films he took a very long break from until the mid 90s uh where we got a film called angel dust and then we got the one that we're going to talk about today august in the water and i think what is so significant about this film uh, other than being from an important director is that angel dust and august in the water marked a change in his filmmaking as i said he was uh he made punk films they were very uh chaotic full of energy in your face um and then you get to these films in the 90s you know a decade later and uh they're they're all mood pieces even the one from the late 90s i've seen called labyrinth of dreams they're all mood pieces um not to say that like punk movies aren't mood pieces but these are more like melancholic and contemplative um and so it marked a really big change and before we talk about the movie i will say that after this this phase of uh atmospheric films in the 90s uh in the early 2000s i would say even probably up until now he has kind of flirted with mixing those two phases of of his career so we get like punk plus mood pieces and good examples of that would be Electric Dragon 80,000 Volts, right, yeah. which is a crazy movie and has a crazy title, but there's also a lot of slow scenes that are just simmer. Um, and then also a movie that I am forcing Jack to watch later this year called Gojo Spirit War Chronicle. <laughs> Ooh. Um, but yeah, it, he he's an interesting director. 
changed the whole landscape of independent filmmaking, uh, is way more influential than people give him credit for. And uh, I think August in the Water, for my money, marks like most interesting film I've seen thus far in his career. Uh, because quite frankly, there's just nothing else I've ever seen anywhere like this movie. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's a thing. Um, I was shocked, surprised, left in awe when I found out this is the same as she that gave us Electric Dragon 80,000 Volts, which is the only other film I've seen from him, which I saw last year on Ben's recommendation. And that just sort of messed me up in a whole different way, which is a, a crazy movie. Uh, but, but as you said, it does have those those softer, sort of quieter sections. And this film was almost the complete opposite in terms of the cyberpunky raw metal flavors of electric dragon 80,000 volts we have august in the water with its sci-fi atmospheric sort of nature and astronomy just needled together so let's dive right in um so august in the water let's talk about this um i want to start off by saying this is a movie i pr- i feel like i wouldn't usually like I'm not very into sci-fi. Uh, coming of coming of age movies can also be hit or miss. Um, it really depends on like how much you connect with these younger characters, how much you see yourself in them. Um, but ultimately, like this is a movie that centers around this girl who comes comes to this school. She's like an elite level swimmer. It's a big deal. Um, these other boys <laughs> kind of get caught up in in her aura you know they're mesmerized by her not just because she you know is cute to them or talented like she just has something about her that you know draws people in and the whole movie kind of centers around that there's like this mysterious element of like what's going on with her and why now that she's in this area why why is this area changing um and I, I won't really even elaborate on the plot too much more because I, f- I feel like that is the gist of it. But also to try and describe the plot, I feel like would do the movie a disservice. Let's just say, pause this episode right now and just go watch this movie. It's a, it's a, a Ben and Jack recommendation already. But um, yeah, you need to sort of... Well, I went in completely blind and I think was all the better for it. But this is so so rich in its atmosphere and it's so keen on its own mystery that you can't help but get you know sort of engrossed within it and it is it is that that coming of age thing works interestingly because obviously this 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 girl is the central character but it's the mystery around her that really works for me and the the sci-fi elements especially i was a bit I was and am a a huge sci-fi fan in general. And it's films like this that make me sort of respect the genre even more because it's seeing directors like Ishii take science fiction to this this other level where it's no longer just scientists shouting each other about, you know, meteors colliding with the world. It's these atmospheric think pieces that you're allowed to sort of swim through in this almost like dreamscape, this dream logic of a film that has sci-fi elements, but it paints it in such a broad and interesting way that you can't help but feel completely captivated by it. And one of the things that helps is the other central character, uh, this boy that is like completely enamored with this girl. I feel like he is just like the viewer throughout the movie in, a, in the sense that he has no idea what the hell is going on. He's experiencing things at the same time as the viewer. That's the thing. 
yeah and he all he knows is that like he cares about this girl and like you know he wouldn't want anything bad to happen to her uh he values their friendship and what appears to be a blossoming relationship and that's really the extent of it and everything that goes around uh, goes on around them is equally as puzzling to him as it is to us and that makes him a character that you can relate to and then in some senses like that kind of just mirrors teenage teenage years and growing up anyways like it's a confusing time period where i feel like not much makes sense uh you don't understand yourself you don't understand the people you like you don't know what's going on around you and you're just trying to figure everything out in in some ways that's what this character is going through and i think that's why uh despite coming of age movies being either very hit or very missed for me this is a, a big hit i think the main thing that i'm enamored with with films like this very you no know, sort of atmospheric films always relies on uh, the blending of visuals and music sort of uh, the soundscape that's painted throughout august in the water is hiroyuki onagawa's score is so perfect for this type of movie it is so atmospheric and it is so warbled and synthy in parts but also incredibly percussive and it works well with the the themes of you know water and all the visual elements of water it feels they, the two go hand in hand together in this sort of dreamscape this dream logic world oh yeah for sure i think that the I mean, it's a film that is strong all around, but the score is definitely a standout. Um, I mean, I, I'd say it's probably one of my favorite scores because of how much it it makes this world work. You know, like this is a world, this this is very much a cinematic world. And, you know, part of what uh, is great about sci-fi when it really works is that it feels like you're transported to like this different place or different time. Um and you get that with August in the Water. It's an otherworldly feeling type of film. And the the score plays a big part in that. And what I love, like how I love how it, you know, evokes the ideas of nature and like the cosmos and like where we fit in within everything. But I also like it because I do feel like as different as it is from Electric Dragon, which came out after it, or the things before it, like Burst City, like... A lot of cyberpunk films specifically, and even his punk films, I feel like they're they're dealing with like humanity's disconnect from, you know, simpler things or or from nature in, in some regards. Like you like Tetsuo the Iron Man, it's all about uh, you know, industrial things, you know, metal, buildings, urban landscapes. Um, and this this movie is set in an ur- urban landscape. Um, and much of it is about like being in touch with like something greater than material possessions or the architecture around you. It's about like what's natural around you. And so as, as weird of a film as it is, it kind of almost makes sense. I think that it was made by a director that's associated with punk and cyberpunk. Like it, it makes sense that he would be concerned about these things and want to portray you know a life in this way yeah for all the 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 sort of the strange happenings that goes on within the film there is that grounded sort of footing in nature and an obsession with nature and astronomy and where we fit in 
as as people on this earth. This may you know exist in this sci-fi world, but there is that grounded realism to it. Mm-hmm. It's funny because like <laughs> some of the things in the movie, um, the one friend, I guess we should say like the the two protagonists. The girl's name is Azumi, and the boy's name is Mao, uh, and they have these two friends, uh, Miki, a girl who's very into the astronomy, and uh, Yukiya, who is a He's kind of like the comedic relief, I would say, and is also interested in Azumi. But like Miki's character is fascinating because she's the one that's very into like astronomy, horoscopes, uh, compatibility between the signs. And it's funny because like that's something in my day to day life where I'm like, I'm not going to lie. Like mm. if, if that makes you happy. I'm glad it makes you happy. But I could not be less interested in it yeah. most of the time. Um, and yet this movie somehow, some way, like manages to make me buy in. I'm like, you know what, when it, when it works on like this level, and maybe this is the way it works for the people that are into it in our, in our actual lives. But like, it is super fascinating. And like, it does, I think a lot of the movie is almost like touching on how, like when you think about everything happening in the world around you, the people you meet the nature around you when you really sit and think about it it makes you feel like super small like it almost makes you feel insignificant and it's like terrifying (laughs) like like it's one of those things you try to think about like how did this world come to be and like your heart starts like pumping because like even thinking about it is just anxiety inducing and (laughs) it's this existentialism through (laughs) august in the water yeah and and this movie like is is honestly all about that and then with Azumi, mm. what makes her such a fascinating lead and what makes, like, the mystery around her so interesting is that, like, she mentions how she feels very small when she thinks about all these things. Um, but there's an accident that happens in the film. And after that accident, you know, she mentions all this anxiety she felt, but then she started to think about it differently and felt like, you know, she felt more in tune with nature. She felt like yes, the world is really big, but that that's not a bad thing. Like, you know, there's all this beauty around me. Um, some of it's, you know, unexplainable. You can't, you can't put your finger on it, but who cares? Like, it's still beautiful. I still get to experience it. And I think that's like what helps this movie is that it's very much like the type of thing to give you an existential crisis, but then it's warm enough, I guess, like kind spirited enough to to not make you like, enormously depressed or anything after watching it (laughs) for sure Because there's other movies that go for a similar thing that like ruin my day august in the water does not ruin my day no that's the thing i'd say for the first because obviously i went into this completely blind not knowing what it is what it was what 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 any of it was about and i felt like they had this the first sort of 30 40 minutes of it had this sort of sinister undertone to it i think it's a combination of how quiet the movie is how uh large the photography is in terms of so there's so many aerial shots especially the diving scenes and the track shots and the dollies as well as as the soundtrack as we've mentioned it feels quite sinister and you that that's sort of embedded within the mystery itself playing into that atmosphere giving it this otherworldly ethereal quality to it and as you say as as she goes into that accident and comes out sort of seeing things differently i felt like i as a viewer was now seeing the movie differently Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And more in, more ingrained in that nature, more ingrained with the, the sort of cosmology behind things. I remember the first time that I watched it, uh, which was around the, I'd say like middle of last year. Uh, it, was in, it was in April, actually. Um, I, I wasn't having the best time of my life. Uh, grad school during a pandemic is, is no fun. Uh, and I had big projects that I had to do then. I, I, I had family issues. Uh, a couple of my family members were ill. Uh, it was like the first time I kind of felt like I was surrounded by death and also felt like, I don't know, I was just like less optimistic, you know? And I think what I loved so much about August in the Water is like you have the the main boy, Mao, he... He's also, like, surrounded by death. I mean, this movie, you know, when Izumi moves into this town, um, something starts happening called the Stone Disease, which sounds terrible when you say it like that, but that's what it's called. And so th this, this young boy is surrounded by death. Uh, he doesn't know what his future holds, and, and all he really has to, to latch onto is this girl and his other two friends. Um, and I like how the movie, after this accident that takes place, you know, he's, I, I don't want to say he's super selfish, but he is in the sense that, like, he wants to protect this girl because, like, she's good for him. And as the movie progresses, you know, he learns to accept that not everything goes the way that you want it to, um, but you can mm -hmm. still be, like, thankful for the time that you had uh, with a person or, you know, with a certain experience and it can change the whole trajectory of your life, which it does for him. I, I think that his arc is super fascinating. Like it, it kind of, mm. it kind of speeds through it, not like in a bad way, but like it fast forwards through different periods of his life towards the end. And I think the way in which this whole entire uh, stone disease, uh, Izumi circumstance, like changes him is. It's incredibly touching. I think you said when I asked you for your initial thoughts right after you watched it, you were like, my head and my heart hurts, but I love it so much. Absolutely, yeah. It's one of those films that you just have to sit with for a while, just because it's just unlike anything I've really experienced, especially from this director who I've only seen sort of two dudes screaming at each other over electric <laughs> guitars. And to have this sort of quiet, sort of reflective, melancholic... Uh, mood piece is it was such a a left turn but like the perfect left turn in terms of being introduced further to this director and this sort of style of filmmaking as well from japan yeah i think that i mean i think that electric dragon is is like brilliant for what it is like when i have to think about all the cyberpunk movies i've seen like that is one even if you don't love it it stands out because it, it's just so oh, sure. it's so different from anything else um and i think with this movie like you can really see how talented of a director he is um some of the shots and stuff that he pulls off it's like i don't even know how they did it for some of the things in the mm. like the diving board scenes are insane i i remember the first time i mm. saw them i was like this is just stunning and um I never thought that diving would be so, I guess, fascinating or fun to watch. But in the context of the movie, Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, yeah. 
Um, and it becomes an art form, like the way he sort of uses these crane shots, but also like these these underwater shots and like the whole obsession with water throughout the film. Anyway, it's just sort of like a visually striking approach to filmmaking. Right, and, and he he blends all of the elements of filmmaking together incredibly well. Like we said, like the score, like he knows how it, every piece that goes into uh, the puzzle of filmmaking, I feel like comes together pretty much perfectly in this movie. Um, but even in his other films, whether you love them or not, I feel like they always end up like exactly how he intended them to, which is something I admire. I think it's the same with the story as well, because the story is juggling different things and different themes and different genres, but as a whole, it works incredibly well. And like reflecting on the film, you don't really realize it as you're watching. You're sort of trying to piece it all together, but reflecting on it, you realize just how concrete the entire narrative is and on top of that the sort of visceral level of filmmaking that this guy is working on i can see this film becoming like a real favorite of mine and i can't wait to revisit it already yeah i, I remember when i first watched it <laughs> i watched it the same day uh, as our friend zebra who i'm shouting out again <laughs> and i'm pretty sure that me and him when we both saw it like it was almost like we were stuck staring at our screen for the next couple hours, like not knowing what to say. Um, it, I don't know. It's just such an enigmatic piece of work um, that sits with you. And it, it's funny, like, I, I, I almost, I feel like I picked the perfect movie to talk about, but almost like the worst because it feels like indescribable. Like it, it feels like, like there, there's, yeah. We've chosen yeah, the I mean, out. there's there's no way <laughs> to like do this film justice other than just watching it yourself. Like it, as goofy as that might sound, mm. it's, yeah, an experience. It, it's an experience. And I, I've seen um, the, one of the film that came out after this, or one of them, uh, Labyrinth of Dreams, has the same lead. Um, the the same woman that played Azumi, her name is Rena Komine, I think. And um, Labyrinth of Dreams is very, very similar. Like, I, I, I would love for you to watch it one day because it is it is also just a full-blown mm. mood piece. I'd say that the narrative is less complex. It's more like there there's still mystery there. There's this guy uh, that is a transportation operator, and uh, Rina Kamine's character assumes that he is is not a great person but she's still like enamored with him anyways and so the whole movie is based around that kind of mystery um but it, it's very much in the same mode of filmmaking where it's like there there's not a perfect way to describe the plot you just have to feel the film um and that film is interesting because it's black and white. So it's like the total opposite of August in the Water, which is like extremely colorful and stuff. But I think what I've learned about Ishii as a filmmaker is just like whatever he wants to put his mind to, I don't think budget or time constraints or anything else really matters. I think he can just pull it off. That's what I've gathered from watching multiple of his films. Because I think the two, the two films we've covered today are you know vastly different, but they are... Uh, my relationship with directors is very similar in that I've only seen now two or three from each, 
but they both have differing styles, but they are so grounded in the ways they're trying to tell these stories that I want to see more Ishii films and see what else he can do. You know, if it, if it, if it is in terms of his cyberpunk stuff and his early punk films, or as you said, th- films like Labyrinth of Dreams, which I'm definitely going to have to check out at some point now to see more of these mood pieces. Yeah, I, I mean, he is one of the ones that I feel like... Uh... Like the Japanuary challenge really suits him because it's it's to it's to introduce you to a director and then the hope is if you liked the movie you saw that you know you seek out more from that director in the future and I feel like he is one of like the best ones to follow because like a lot of like if I were to look at like an Ozu or a Kurosawa who <clears throat> I've seen a few films from each of them uh, not everything. But, like, you you kind of have an idea of what you're going to get. I mean, you're going to get something good, first of all. But, like, I don't want to say they don't stray too far from what works for them. But, like, like I said, you know what you're going to get. Um, I And I, I would say they still have phases, I'm sure. Like, someone could say this is a certain phase for Kurosawa or Ozu. But, like, generally, you're getting, like, you know, epics from Kurosawa. You're getting these, like, grounded uh sly and subtle family family dramas dramas from ozu Mm. whereas ishii you have like very distinct phases and i think that like if you are a cinephile that is something that intrigues you like you want to see how someone changes over time especially when the changes are so so i guess strong so intense absolutely it's always fun um going through a director who has such a versatile filmography in terms of you know films that they've directed which is why i think you're drawn to film uh people like mike as well who have seemed to do sort of anything and everything and it's interesting seeing how they approach different genres and how they approach different styles of filmmaking so i think ishii might be one of those for me and um i'm definitely have to check out some more soon yeah i mean his um the early like the early punk films i've seen like like burst city for example I mean, it is a long movie, and I, I've probably overrated it in the sense that like, its its impact is too significant for, for me to like, not give it a good rating, I guess. Um, but it's very long. It, it's it's in your face. It's angry filmmaking. It's it's like, you know, corporations suck. The world sucks but we have punk and we have each other. And like, that's, that's kind of what it's grounded in. So you have these, pu- you have these punk films from, from the eighties, like burst city. And then you move to August in the water and, and you have something that feels so different yet, like thematically makes sense in this director's career. Like, like I said, a lot of punk and cyberpunk is like revolving around anxieties around rapid urbanization, uh, technological advancement, all this stuff it's like losing yourself in a sea of things that don't really matter i feel like that's kind of what cyberpunk is all about and with august in the water it like fully indulges in that but without the insanity that i had come to know from that director you move forward to electric dragon and even then like i i feel like that is like the blending of the two like it's insane and it's chaotic but there's like these lingering moments of almost like nothing happening and like august in the water is like that too like there's moments where like it just makes you sit with it and and i think i appreciate it like 
and once you move to the film that came out at the same time as Electric Dragon, which is Gojo, like that's a film that <laughs> one put the product put a production company like out of business, which is like sad. But yeah, Electric Dragon and Gojo, needless to say, uh, were not big financial hits. But like Gojo, like it had like huge production behind it in the sense of its special effects that like blew my mind because it's like it's Ishii. It's this guy I know that makes films kind of like on his own, does it his own way. And like Gojo, I think is still like that. It, it just goes to show that he can kind of, his vision will come through no matter what type of movie he's making or who he's working with. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. So yeah, this is definitely going to be a, a huge recommendation for me as a first time watch. Um, uh, I just <laughs> still struggling really to find the words to talk about my experience of watching this last night. And it's a film that I'm definitely going to keep in mind for rewatches in the future, just to really try and work out what I think of this thing. But I know that I love it. I know that <laughs> I love it. And I know I'm going to have to check it out again. I feel like I will revisit this endlessly throughout my life. And um, I, I feel like this is a prime example of a movie that um, you get what you put into it. And so my reservation kind of comes with that caveat. Like if you, if you're going through a particularly difficult time in your life, like you just feel confused, don't know where you're at, what you want to do, uh, or maybe you're young and kind of just feel like uh, adulthood is creeping up and that's anxiety inducing. Like this is a movie you can get things from, but also if you're like, older and you're reflecting on everything you've done throughout your life and how it's impacted you the movie can work in that way but um it's just something that you have to you have to actively watch you can't you can't be distracted you have to understand that there's going to be uh elements to the narrative that you will never fully understand because i think it's a deeply personal work for ishii and that makes it a deeply personal viewing experience for the rest of us. Like my experience with it probably was not the exact same as yours, Jack, but we were still moved emotionally for sure. And, and then with Tokyo Drifter, complete opposite, but I cannot recommend enough if you need an intro to Yakuza cinema um, or, or even just 60s Japan cinema, especially because 60s Japan, everyone's still primarily thinking of Ozu or Kurosawa. Uh, they're also thinking of more of the heavyweights in Japanese new wave, like Oshima. I mean, Suzuki is associated with the new wave, but most people think of, think of Oshima. Um, but I think that like, it is, it's a movie that is really short and is influenced by a lot of things. And I think it all works to its benefit. It makes it more accessible. It gives it more things to latch onto two awesome movies to kickstart our new podcast so thank you for listening to adventures through asian cinema next time we will be discussing films from japan again as we are still going to be in japanuary we're not going to reveal which films they are but we are going to be doing two more japanese films from ben and myself ben where can we find you on the internet um i am primarily most active on letterboxd and my profile on there is just brazy benjamin there's no spaces and brazy is exactly what it sounds like it's crazy but with a b and uh 
you can find me <laughs> you can find me in the r slash letterboxd discord server that is the other place that i talk most of the time uh so yeah you can look for me there brazy ben or brazy benjamin is usually the tag and I'm uh, Jack Davenport without any of the vowels to make it nice and difficult. So I am J-C-K-D-V-N-P-R-T, very active on Letterboxd as well as Twitter. And as Ben mentioned, the r slash Letterboxd subreddit and Discord server. Thanks again for listening to Adventures Through Asian Cinema. We'll hit you up next time. Mm-hmm.